Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Choir's taking its seat. Why don't you take your Bibles and let's open up to 1 John. We've been in a series looking at the small letter towards the back of your New Testament. And uh, we're going to be looking this morning, as you can see on your outline, at chapter 3. And before we look into this passage, or at least a part of this passage, it uh, might be helpful to ask, since we've been here for several weeks, in this little letter, where are we? That's not a location question, of course, because we know where we are. If you have an outline, you know we're going to be in chapter 3. But that is more a question of where are we at this moment in the flow of this little letter that was written that has a powerful effect if we would but heed the advice that it gives us. Where are we? That's a good question because, you know, this letter of 1 John is hard to get your hands on. Uh, It's hard to get a mental grip on. If you've ever taken the time just to simply free read the letter of 1 John, you will find that you feel like you're all over the place. He seems to be at one thought and then he jumps to another thought and then he's off on another thought and Uh, From time to time, it feels like you're chasing a rabbit somewhere. And yet the reality is that his style is very simple, and you feel it's simple, and yet it's his logic. His logic is most difficult. I think of John Moore as one of what I call a buckshot communicator. You know, with stuff all over the place. And you wonder, where does it all tie together? There are different kinds of communicators. There are those who are building block communicators. Uh, Those who, as you talk to them, It's like following a logical sequence of thoughts. They make this point, and then they make that point, and that point builds on this point, and then they make a third point that builds on a second point, and so on and so forth, till they come to this silver bullet, one-shot, clearly substantiated conclusion that they can shoot right through you. The Apostle Paul is a great illustration of a building block communicator. Anyone who's ever taken the time to read through the book of Romans feels like he is arguing a, a, a case before court with this very logically oriented, sequentially oriented train of thought. And there are some of us that are like that. There's others of us, though, that are like John. We're called buckshot communicators. And maybe you know one, or maybe you are one. And you'll be talking about the fence that you've repainted to a neighbor and tell them all about the fence, and then suddenly you're off talking about your trip in Florida, your vacation there. And they're still trying to figure out where they lost you between the fence and Florida. Or maybe you get stuck on uh, a certain word or phrase. I found that uh, some people are buckshot communicators. They can create a whole series of thoughts just simply around one phrase. Uh, They might be talking about the stock market and that the stock market dropped three points and you're about to enter into what you think is a logical discussion of the stock market, and then in just a moment, they're talking about Scotty Thurman's three-point shot at the NCA in Charlotte. And then you're making a transition to Charlotte, but they're wondering why Fellowship doesn't still have three services. <laughs> That's what I call a buckshot communicator. But you know what? They have a lot to say, too. And this little letter, though it is not easy to follow John's logic from time to time, He has a lot of important things to say and to say to us. So where are we in John's buckshot style? Well, I want to offer you two perspectives this morning 
that will allow you to maybe gain a better focus and to follow his thoughts uh, and help us through the rest of this letter here this morning and in the weeks to come. And let me give them to you. First of all is this. John is writing against those who would intellectualize Christianity, who would make it a thought religion, and who would minimize, if not ignore altogether, the connection between what Christianity teaches and how one actually lives. They disconnect those two. And it becomes an intellectual experience. It becomes something that you acknowledge, a creed that you, you affirm, a place that you go out of duty, and it's all in this theoretical realm, but it gets disconnected and in a real sharp way between how you actually live. These people in the first century were called Gnostics. That's a Greek word for knowledge. If we were to bring that up 2,000 years and use slang language, I would say that they were knowledge-only Christians. Knowledge-only Christians. People who were deep into theology. They could talk about all kinds of different theological premises. They had biblical knowledge. They were in very many Bible studies. They, they loved Bible knowledge and Bible facts and Bible minutia and Bible trivia of every sort. They could talk on all different theological strains at one time. They could tell you about the religious fine points of each and every denomination. They knew history. They knew spiritual theory, but they were short. Very short on life. You know, I've known... I've known Gnostics in my lifetime. Have you met some Gnostics in your lifetime? I have. One that comes to my mind probably uh, most powerfully was a young man who visited our church for several weeks. and I'd met him, so I invited him out to lunch. And we went out to lunch, and we were talking, and it was real obvious that he was knowledgeable about a host of spiritual concepts. But as we talked, he kind of got lathered up in the discussion and he began to talk about what he perceived was a weakness in the preaching here at our church. And that may very well be. But his point became more and more on the fact that he felt like that we weren't deep enough into the Scriptures. He felt like that uh, he wanted to hear more and more from the pulpit about the different Greek words and the different Hebrew words and the Aramaic additions to the New Testament. And he wanted to talk more about doctrine. And he wanted to hear more about Arminianism and Calvinism and Reformed theology and the church fathers and the patristic writings and all that. We went on and on. He says, I don't hear that. What I hear is you taking the Scriptures and trying to make sense of it to life. And he said, "And I, that's okay, but I'd like to hear more doctrine, Bible doctrine. Well, our conversation ended at that point after you know a few statements about why I felt like maybe we were who we were and why we said what we said. But uh, call it coincidence or providence, about three or four weeks later, a young lady made an appointment with me to come in and see me for counseling. And uh, she sat down and we began to talk and she began to unfold for me this problem she was having in a relationship with a young man. She said she had entered into this relationship wanting it to stay at a certain level spiritually too, but that it had degenerated into now it was a pressure-packed, relationship where the press was on to be involved sexually. And she said in the last month, this young man had pressured her week after week to have sexual intercourse outside of marriage so that they could sense some kind of compatibility before he made a commitment. And then she stated her, his name. 
And his name was the name of the young man I had lunch with three weeks prior when we needed to talk about doctrine. You know what that's called? That's called 20th century Gnosticism. And the last thing that guy needed was another doctrine. He needed a life. That's what he needed. He needed a real life. A life that could express those truths in real ways, not in theoretical ways. You know, I hate to say this, but I've been a Gnostic. There have been times I've been a Gnostic as well. There have been times when my mind can see the kingdom of God with a very clear eye, where my tongue can prattle on about a number of theological doctrines. I'd be willing to sit and talk with anyone about those. When I was at the seminary, I did quite well in all my theological courses, so I know a host of theological concepts. But at the same time, there is, at those moments, I find myself with my life refusing to acknowledge what my eye can see. Refusing to yield what my mind knows. And that's Gnosticism too. When you become all talk, yet low on life. Unloving. Selfish. Unwilling to let God have His way with you. That's called Gnosticism. And it infects the church. And that's exactly why John wrote this little letter. Now he was writing at his day to a specific group of heretics who love to disassociate life and thought. But you know, the plague still remains, even to this day. And we have it sometimes within us. And that's why this letter is so helpful, because it speaks to how one can reconnect rather than disconnect life and faith. And this little letter has it all in John's rambling style. Now that's one perspective. A second perspective is revolves around our passage this morning. Because our passage that we're going to look at is really within a larger passage where John is dealing with, of all things, doctrine, but from his particular style. If you look on your outlines just for a moment, you can see the different doctrines he deals with starting all the way back in chapter 2 at verse 29, and then he continues to address different doctrinal subjects all the way through chapter 4, verse 6. He starts, as you'll notice, in 2.29 with the issue of spiritual regeneration. And then he'll finish this particular section of his letter on the doctrine of apostolic authority in chapter 4, verse 6. Now this is no ordinary doctrinal statement we're going to look at. And I want you to know we've been in it, but I want you to get a higher view of it for a moment. This is what I call a hands-on doctrinal statement. It's important that you hear hands-on because John, and this is why I like the guy, he's a hands-on kind of apostle. If you read many doctrinal statements, and maybe when you came to our church, you read our doctrinal statements. Maybe when you've joined different churches in your past, you've been a part of seeing a doctrinal statement. When I went to the seminary, one of the things that I read when I first got there is I opened up, and right there at the very front was a doctrinal statement. And it'll say things like this. I believe in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Or I believe in the deity, the full deity and full humanity of Christ. Or I believe in the second birth at regeneration. Some of us went to churches or institutions like myself where one of the doctrinal statements was, I believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And there are those of us over time who read those same scriptures in context who now believe in a post-tribulational rapture. I mean, there are different things where you're identifying what you believe. 
But I want you to know, John never uses in this whole section, I believe. Yet it's a doctrinal statement. The word you'll hear all the way through John's doctrinal statement, especially as he has in view these Gnostic heretics, is not I believe, but I know, or we know. His gets much more down into the elements of life itself. He moves from an I believe kind of doctrinal statement that you maybe have seen in the past, where they'll list scripture references to buttress that particular statement of faith, to an I know doctrinal statement with a here's why I know, and then he gives proof to why he knows that kind of doctrinal statement. Now, to help make sense of that, let's look through some of these doctrines and you'll see how he does that. Look first of all at verse 29 where he's speaking of spiritual regeneration. Now a lot of us would say, I believe in the second birth, and the new birth that comes only in Christ, the one Jesus spoke about in John 3. But here's how John says it. He says it this way. If you know that He is righteous, that is Jesus, then, and here's the word, not I believe, but you know. Here's how you know. You know that everyone also who practices righteousness, righteousness is born again, are born of Him. Now we can talk about I believe in the second birth, but He says you can know some have had the new birth. Here's how you know. Here's how you can get your hands on it. That person practices righteousness. We're not talking about perfection, but the ongoing manifestation of their life, there's been a change. And that change is around righteousness. Look at the second coming, the doctrine of the second coming in chapter 3, verse 2. It says, Beloved, now we're children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be. But then he says, Not I believe, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we will seem just as He is. Now, how does He know that? How does He have such certainty that we'll be like Him? Because of verse 3, the very next verse. Because He knows that in this life, everyone who walks by faith and fixes his or her attention on the living Lord will start changing now. Notice the word, purify Himself purify herself. They'll start changing. Life will get more holy, more righteous. And he says, if we know that's happening now, as we believe in Him who we can't see, we know that when we stand before Him who we will see, that we'll be like Him. We're certain of it. We know it. Look at spiritual authenticity that he speaks about in verse 10 of that same chapter. He says, by this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. You don't need an I believe. You don't need some abstract thought pattern. You can know it. Here's how you know it. Because the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. They can tell you all day long they're of God. But he says no. There's something different there. And it's obvious and should be obvious. And you need to get your hands on it. Look at verse 19 when he speaks of assurance the doctrine of spiritual assurance in uh, verse 19. He says, We shall know by this that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before. Now, he's not talking about the security of the believer, and I'll mention this next week. He's talking about a different kind of assurance here. But, he, but here's the point. How do we know we're right? When we address issues and try to help people, how do we know we're right? How can we have assurance? Well, he says, verse 19, we know by this. And what is this? This is back to verse 18. We know we're of the truth. We know we're right because we don't just love in 
word or in tongue, like the Gnostics who talk about love. Like C.S. Lewis says, they love everybody generally, but they love no one in particular. Okay? Here's how we know that we're of the truth because we love in, in deed. That's how we know, and in truth. That's how we know we're of the truth, and that's why we should have assurance. Look at abiding in Christ in verse 24. He says there, I'm picking up in the middle of the verse, we know by this that He abides in us. The living Christ abides in us. How do we know? We know by this. What is this? Well, it's the two verses up above. Verses 23 and 24. Here's how we know. Because we believe in the name of Christ, we love one another, in verse 24, and we keep His commandments. And it's because we do that that we know that the living Christ abides in us. But listen, if you don't believe in the name of the Son of God and who He is, or if you don't love one another, or if you are not keeping His commandments, you can know something else. To John, it's obvious. You are not abiding in the living God. And that's doctrine. Look at chapter 4 when he speaks of false teachers. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because there have been many false prophets who have gone out into the world. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Now there are many people who come to your door and will tell you about God. Some people will cost you at the airport and tell you about God. How do you know you have the truth and they don't? John says, I can tell you because of this. Look at verse 2. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, which the Gnostics did not do. That He was deity, full deity. Like the Jehovah Witnesses do not do. Like the Mormons do not do. Every person who confesses that Jesus Christ is full deity, that He came and lived in the flesh, He lived a sinless life, He died for our sins, He rose from the dead, He has been affirmed by His Father as the Lord of heaven and earth. Those who believe that, you can be assured, are of the truth. Period. Anybody else who says something different, you can know they are not of the truth. Look at verse 6 when he speaks to authority. In this case, apostolic authority. He says, we are from God. And this is John speaking as an apostle. We are from God, and he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And by this, and I almost want to put a you rather than or myself, by this you know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In other words, how do I know that I have the truth and somebody else has error? when it comes to a lot of theological and spiritual issues today. I can listen to Shirley MacLaine. Okay? I can listen to a host of New Age prophets. I can talk to all kinds of people who are now in the Jesus Seminar, reinventing Christ. Or I can go to a lot of liberal scholars who, in their arrogance, 2,000 years removed from the event, think that they have the ability to reconstruct the Christian faith in a totally new way which does nothing more than simply crawl after the culture of our day and say, well, we're going to make this culture, now that it's been dumbed down, religious. How can I know that's of error and this is the truth? Because those people, John says, who know us, who listen to us, the apostles, not a Jesus Seminar's critic, not a bishop who is educated over his head. Not somebody who's coming out of his crystals. But those who listen to the apostles who confirm the same by signs and wonders. 
Those people who started a revolutionary movement that swept the world, when we listen to them and not others, we know we have the truth. That's what John's telling. You can get your hands on that, can't you? And it makes sense to us. And that's what this letter's all about. And that's why it's so important. Because in a day where there's all kinds of perverse teachings and we live in an age of immeasurable relativism, there's some things that we need to know as Christians. And this letter becomes really important in a world that's long on knowledge but short on living. That's what this book is all about. Now with these two perspectives, we're going to look at one of those doctrines. Now I had intended in all my good purposes to do three of them here this morning. But I've already learned through one crass experiment just a few minutes earlier that I can only cover one. Okay, so you guys relax. We're going to only talk about the doctrine of spiritual authenticity because I could get no further or maybe the audience wouldn't let me go any further. So let's look at uh, verse 11. We're going to look at uh, verses 11 and uh, following and talk about this doctrine of spiritual authenticity. John's going to elaborate on it, how you can know somebody's authentic. Verse 11 says, For this is the message which you, little children, he's speaking here, have heard from the beginning that we should love one another. Now that's a very simple truth, but it's a very profound truth. There are a lot of simple truths in my life that I heard from my parents when I were growing up. These kind of repetitive messages like this that I heard over and over and over. They were kind of drummed into me from the day that I can first think a conscious thought as a young boy. Maybe you can remember some of these. Don't bite your fingernails. Remember that? Stand up straight. Turn off the lights when you leave the bathroom. Do you have all your homework done? No. Look both ways before you cross the street. Can't. Never did anything. Remember that? How about eat your peas? Or your broccoli? Or your green beans? Just eat something green in your life. <laughs> Don't talk back to your mother. Look the person in the eye when they speak to you. Did you remember to brush your teeth? Turn down that music. And the one I heard over and over from my mom, one of these days, you'll thank me for this. <laughs> You've heard those repetitive messages from the beginning, haven't you? And now you found yourself, many of you, saying the same things to your own children. Well, here's what I want you to know. There is a message like a drumbeat in the Scriptures. It starts in the Old Testament with the prophets. It runs through the temple and all the ceremonies. It comes into the New Testament in the person of Jesus. It's spoken about in His apostles. You can see it of members of the church. You can follow it into the patristic era. You can watch it go all the way through 2,000 years of church struggle into today. Your kids are hearing this. It's one of the first things they hear in Learning Center. And you will hear this message repeated till the day you And that's love one another. That's the mark of the church. It's to love one another. It's not to forsake one another. And we're not talking about a love you can produce in and of yourself. 
apart from some supernatural regeneration of your heart. And I say that because everyone loves. You don't have to be a Christian to love. The Christian has no monopoly, so to speak, on the ability to love. Everyone, believer or unbeliever, can love. But the difference comes when we begin to address how we love and where we love and who we love and even the very capacity to love. Then things become different. I want you to circle that word love in verse 11. It's a word that you have heard from time to time, the Greek word agape. It's not talking about a love that you can produce on your own, some kind of natural love bond that family members just simply find is there because they are a blood tie. This word agape speaks of loving the unlovely. It speaks of loving the different. It speaks of loving in the face of the difficult. It speaks of sacrificial love beyond what you can give. It's a higher love. It's an unnatural love in that it's supernatural. Summer's almost here and my grass is beginning to green up and it just simply reminds me of the days that I'll go out since we do not have our yard on some kind of mechanical timer that automatically waters it. We go out with the hose and the sprinkler and all that and we'll go out and I have to run down the hill to get that very small part right down at the spot that doesn't dry up in the sun and I'll put the sprinkler there and I'll run all the way up the hill and I'll turn on the water and I'll wait. But then all I'll hear is this kind of sound. Now those of you who do this know what I'm talking about, don't you? What does it mean? It means somewhere in that long winding path of that hose, there's a twist in that hose and the water is not able to get through to light up that sprinkler head to water your ground. Did you know that when man fell in Adam, when his nature fell, that his ability, his love life became twisted like that? And in that twist, there's still love going through the pipeline, but it doesn't turn very fast. And what it gives off is not very strong. See, we can all love with natural love, but if we watch what comes out the other end of our love life, it is usually that we love that which is convenient. We fall in love with that which is lovely. We get in love with those things that love ourselves. And sometimes we love ourselves so much that we actually do harm to others. We can love. But it's a twisted love out of a twisted nature that doesn't give off what God originally intended for His people. His creation. That's why when you read verse 11, immediately the name in verse 12, you see it there, Cain, comes to John's mind. Now again, if you don't think about it, if you're just reading naturally, you think John has just once again shot some buckshot and has gone off chasing a rabbit. But there's a reason for Cain being here. It's to remind us of this story of Cain and his brother Abel. They were brothers. They loved one another. And as such, there should have at least been this natural love tie between them. But there was an issue that arose between Cain and God. Not Cain and Abel. Cain and God that openly twisted that love between Cain and Abel to a very tragic end. You go back maybe this afternoon and read it in Genesis 4. It's an interesting story. As these two boys bring their sacrifices to God and offer them. And amazingly in the offering, God accepts the sacrifice of Abel. But He rejects 
the sacrifice of his brother Cain. And we want to know why. And yet the Scriptures do not give us any specifics. In fact, the only little hint or ray of light we have into that moment is just simply in in, uh, Hebrews chapter 11 where it says that Abel offered his sacrifice in faith and obedience. Which makes us think, well, must the problem with the sacrifice must have been in Cain that it was offered without faith and without sacrifice. In other words, Cain offered to God something that was easy. It wasn't right, but it was easy. It wasn't sacrificial, but it was convenient. And he was bringing that just simply to get by on his terms, his way. And he offered it to God, and he expected God to accept it because he wanted God to do what he wanted to do. But God turned around and like a slap in the face, God refused to accept it. And you know what's interesting about the story? With God refusing to accept this sacrifice, rather than Cain saying, why? Or maybe I should repent. Or God, where where have I missed it? Cain is a representative of the whole human race who wants to get by on our effort alone. He looks at God and he just gets mad. Then he gets real mad. And then he gets so mad in his rebellion towards God that he kills his brother for an irrational act. See, his brother hadn't done anything. But he vents his anger at God for not bending God's knee to him and doing what he wants on his terms and his timing. He vents it on his brother in an irrational act of murder. Now, here's what I want you to know the point is, because listen, there's a deep insight for some of you here for your life and why you feel today the way you feel. Listen closely. The point is this. In refusing to submit to God, Cain not only was not able to love more, to love with a higher love, with greater capacity, but in not submitting to God, just the opposite happened. In his rebellion to God, he lost full capacity that he had to love his brother. He died inside. And in a totally irrational act, he struck down his innocent brother when the real issue had nothing to do between him and his brother. It had a lot to do between him and his God. You know, you see a lot of irrational things taking place in America today. You watch people come in and rob a fast food attendant of $50 and walk out the store on a video camera only to turn to walk back in and just shoot him and leave. And we say, why? You see police called all the time up to a home where there are two people who four years, ten years, thirty years earlier stood at an altar glowing at one another, pledging life and love to one another for the rest of their natural life. And yet we see on TV a body laying in the bedroom where this person who loved this person so much in an irrational act that they can't even explain after it's over, gun this person down or stab this person or brutalize this person. You find children wrapped up in a trash bag, placed in a garbage disposal, where this natural love between mother and child should have been there, but it's been replaced with something totally irrational. And we go, why? And you know, there is no answer to that. 
You look in verse 12 and it say, and for what reason did he slay him? You know, if you went to Cain after he struck down his brother and his brother's head split open with an axe, and you said, Cain, why did you do that? I think Cain would have looked up and said, I don't know. He'd have been boiling with anger. He'd vented it. He'd gotten it out. But now that he looked at the consequences, he would have been unsure why he even did that. Because it really made no sense. You see, when we shut out our demand, we shut out God, our demand of Him, only what we want, when we in our spiritual natures, because we're all spiritual, blame Him for circumstances which in fact we've only brought on ourselves, and yet we turn to God and scream out at heaven, we in those moments are not only losing the ability to love supernaturally, but we're losing even the ability to love naturally. That's why it says, by the way, in verse 14 at the end, it says, he who does not love, he's not let God help him love in this way, he abides in death. And as we abide in this death, we do irrational, hateful things that we can't explain. I know I've done this. I've come home and kicked the dog who comes out wagging the tail to welcome the master. And if somebody at that moment said, why did you kick your dog? I don't know. I was just mad. I was mad somehow back there in my spiritual nature that God didn't give me what I wanted. Life didn't work out as I demanded. This person didn't agree with me and they had to. And in that, this twisted hose becomes even more constricted. You twist it even tighter. And out the end of the sprinkler head comes less and less water until it stops altogether. So we hate the very spouses that we pledged our life to. We take it out on our families. We become unfaithful to our marriages, self-centered. We desert our children. We refuse to pay them any money after we've left. We hate anyone who doesn't agree with us. And in an extreme form that America finds itself, we kill our children. We kill our mates. And like Mark mentioned earlier in the message, some people, in a totally irrational act, even kill themselves. The greater the distance from God, the more extreme the acts of irrationality. And if someone were to ask, for what reason? The only answer is a spiritual. We have cut ourselves off from the love of God. And in cutting ourselves off from the love of God, we have twisted our natures even further and cut ourselves off from love altogether. The Bible says love one another. You've heard this message from the beginning. Love one another. But make no mistake, it's not a natural love. It is a supernatural love, a love higher than you can get yourself, and it is demanded of you that you come to the God who can give it and ask Him to give it to you. To get it. You see, submission is the source from which this higher love flows. And if there's no submission in your life, there will be none of this supernatural love because it's special. It only comes from God Himself. But when that love does flow, it marks itself, as John now goes on to say in the next verses, it marks itself in some very visible ways. And I want to mention those to you. Notice in verse 16 it says, we know love by this. John's going to tell us. Remember, he's a hands-on theologian. That no 
by this, that He laid down His life, that is Christ for us, and we ought also to lay our lives down for the brethren. In other words, if you love by God's love, the focus is not going to be on comfort. The focus is going to be going beyond yourself to love others in a sacrificial way. And you'll feel the little sting of dying to self when you love as God loved. Look at verse 17. He goes on, he says, But whosoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart to him, how can the love of God abide in him? John says if you have God's love, if you want to see a manifestation of God's love, you'll find the person who has ceased to be indifferent to the needs around him. This person will become instead sensitive to those around him. He'll, he'll see those things. He'll, he'll feel those things. He'll move to that kind of pain and do whatever he can to be responsive to that kind of hurt around him. Look at verse 18. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. The point is, when God's love flowing through somebody, they cease to be just taught. They become very specific in their acts of kindness. And those acts make a difference and people notice. You know, though it was in one sense a small thing and it was only one day, people noticed when we went out and worked around the city. We've got a number of letters from different city officials. I want to read just one of them to you from the mayor of North Little Rock. He wrote it to Jim. After that helping hands, he said, Dear Jim Allen, he said, On behalf of the city of North Little Rock, let me express our gratitude for your efforts in organizing this event, mobilizing over 100 volunteers to give their Saturday and help their fellow man is not an easy task these days, especially with all the demands placed on our time. And you know what? When I read that statement, I look up here in verse 16 and I say, that's verse 16. <laughs> that's what it is, practically. He goes on to say, as he writes, he says, without the help of churches like yours, North Little Rock could not make the kind of progress it has. And I also understand that there was a similar number of volunteers from your church who did a project near Central High School in, North, in Little Rock at the same time. If every church in the area could do what you have done, we could go a long way towards solving many of the problems that are facing our cities. Again, let me express my appreciation on behalf of the citizens of North Little Rock. Sincerely, Mayor Patrick Hayes. You know, we got a lot of those. That was one thing. But it was something. It was specific. It demonstrated love. And it sent a signal of hope. Imagine if all of us had that twist taken out of our knot and the love of God was flowing through us to those around us. You see, that's really the challenge. When John talks about the doctrine of spiritual authenticity, he is not some theological scholar locked away in some ivory tower. He's a hands-on theologian who helps us to understand if you're spiritually authentic, it will manifest itself in the specific acts of love and righteousness and it will be manifest by a higher growing capacity to love. That's how you know. And we know He's there. There's a wonderful story told about an airman named Jacob DeShazer. Some of us, this takes us past our time, but he was a member of the crew of Colonel Jimmy Doolittle, who early in World War II flew over Japan and bombed Japan and showed Japan that it was not going to be invincible in this war and bombed the homeland. It was a daring raid. And in the midst of this raid, 
Jacob Deshazer's plane was shot down and he was captured by the Japanese. After his capture, Deshazer became famous in the Japanese prison in which he was housed. He became famous because he was so fearless. He hated the Japanese with a passion. And he didn't even care what they did to him. So he was vicious and he was violent. He cursed them at every opportunity. And he caused such a problem in the prison in which he was housed that finally they just simply didn't know what to do with him. So they locked him away by himself in solitary confinement for years until the war ended. While he was in that prison, he got his hands on a Bible some way. And he read that Bible. And in the midst of reading that Bible, he met the God of love. In the last year of his captivity, his heart began to soften in some unusual ways. He became a model prisoner. They couldn't believe it. He began to, to talk kindly to his Japanese uh, captors. He began to witness to them. He began to pray for them out of a broken heart. And so spectacular was his conversion to the Japanese that after the war, his life story in that prison was written up in a little tract and passed around Japan. One of the hands that it fell into was in the hands of a young captain by the name of Nitsuo Fushida. Now, that name doesn't ring a bell with us, but his name is famous in Japan. You see, Fushida was the guy who was in the lead plane on December the 7th, 1941, flying over Pearl Harbor. He was the captain who ordered the bombs to fall on the battleship Arizona. He was the one that led the raid of Pearl Harbor. And after the war, he was a war hero all over Japan. But when he returned, he found that the war and the hate and the death and the defeat had left his heart empty and cold. It was like that hose again. It was just twisted a little tighter and nothing came out the end. Somehow he picked up that track of the Shazer's life and began to read it. And he noticed that there was this incredible change in this man that interested him. And so he went and purchased the New Testament. And he began to read through this New Testament and it captivated him, this story of this young man. And then he, as he read through the New Testament, he came to the part of the crucifixion where Jesus hanging on the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his constricted heart of war and death and hate finally broke open. He thought, if God could love people like that, if He could give Himself to the very people who were torturing Him and still love them, then I can do the same. And his life totally changed. He became a fervent believer. And now, a number of years later, he is a gray-headed old evangelist. Can you imagine that? The guy who led the raid to Pearl Harbor goes up and down the continent of Japan and shares Christ and tells them that the God of love who changed his heart can change yours. Spiritual authenticity makes itself known in a real life, a life of love. And as we close here this morning, I think it's important that we make some hands-on application. If the drumbeat of the church is love one another, then there's a very natural question that needs to be asked. Are you? Are you loving one another? Now, I'm not talking about loving those who love you. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, so what? 
That's what he said. He just said, so what? Even, even the vilest of people, even thieves do that. They love those who love them. But my question goes deeper. Do you love those who don't love you? Are there people in this body who for whatever reason, this body, this group of redeemed people, that you have had a broken relationship with, and rather than healing that, rather than fostering a free-flowing, confessed, forgiven relationship, the knot has just gotten tighter. And though you still relate to everybody else like you think you used to, the reality is, is the flow of love by the bitterness of that broken relationship is just tightening and cutting off the flow of even natural love. You build a number of those up in your life, you're in trouble. You're in real trouble. Maybe you've got a family member, a son or daughter, a cousin, an uncle, who love is not there anymore. It needs to be worked through. Maybe there's a friend where there's a broken relationship. Maybe there's even a marriage partner. You know, those things cannot be left unattended. You think you can suck it up? No, you just twist it to death. You don't ever suck it up. It's got to be opened up. There's got to be flow through there. And you can only do that when you come to the God of love, the God of healing, the God of forgiveness, the God who is desperately wanting to do with you what He could have done with Cain if Cain would have just let him. Remember God, when, when, when Cain sinned and got mad, God still came to him and He said, Cain, why are you so upset? He said, if you'll just change your ways, won't it be well with you? And the answer was yes. But he didn't want it that way. You get the opportunity even today to make it different. And it won't be theoretical. You can't stay in your seat and just say, yeah, I forgive them. It's going to have to be hands-on righteousness. Hands-on love. It's going to have to be contact with that person in many cases. And only then can you walk away. As I've done on a number of occasions, when I've been at odds with somebody, and we've talked it through, and when we finish, we embrace, and I walk out the door, and I feel like a giant open garden hose with stuff just flowing through me. But you know, if that's not healed, you walk out tighter than ever before. You want to love like Christ loved? You want to have God work through you in that way? The source is submission. You have to come to God to get it. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.